If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey y'all, welcome to the Sci-Fi Sci, a podcast about black science fiction and fantasy. I am your very black host, Amber Wallace. And I'm your second co-host and number one flan, Benjamin Wallen. Ben, what the hell is a flan? It is a fan of the TV show Firefly. So it's not like the the like dessert you get at the you know, flan is what I'm thinking. I think that's, yeah. You I would rather flan. you be a dessert because you are a snack. Anyway, enough about Ben. Today is episode two where we will discuss, review, no, hail Gina Prince Bythewood. She is an icon. If you think you don't know who she is, you do. Why? Because you have seen love and basketball. After that, she didn't have to direct anything else. But guess what? She's a bad bitch. So she did. She brought us Beyond the Lights. She also brought us The Secret Life of Bees. And today she's the first black woman to direct a major film adaptation of a comic book. She gave us The Old Guard and we love it. Ben made me read volume one and volume two. So I'm really excited to talk about how it was different from the movie. Ben, I'm just gushing in all of the Gina Prince Bythewood realness. So why don't you talk a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. She did direct Love and Basketball, which I thought would be perfect for us to watch The Old Guard because Love and Basketball is on that list of black movies that I have to watch for me to continue being with you. Of course, yes. So we've watched Set It Off, we've Mm. watched Babs, we've watched The Players Club. Yes, we have. Uh, Surprisingly enough, though, I had seen Love and Basketball before. Mm. Uh, Who showed you Love and Basketball? Actually, I watched it when I was a kid. And there was a detail in the film that I'll never forget. It was the first sex scene I had seen with a condom. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I do vividly remember when Quincy grabbed that condom and it was like, oh, this is how it's done. Which is why she's the goat, right? She's She has this great film about this black woman finding her career and sort of that tug and war of trying to maintain a relationship. But she also says like, hey, motherfuckers, real sex is safe. So y'all should do that. I, I mean, of course. Of course. Her attention to detail is definitely a big part of this movie. And you see it time and time again. And just a huge warning, there will be spoilers. <gasps> we loved this movie. so uh, It's on Netflix. Please go watch it. Yeah. Go watch it. It's amazing. 
uh, and then come back and listen to us. So the big gist of it, it deals with this idea of immortality, which is a very, very common theme in science fiction. And I'm thinking specifically of Octavia Butler's Wild Seed and then Paul Anderson's The Boat of a Million Years, which deals with a group of immortals that are immortal from you know thousands of years ago up into a post-human existence, so okay. within far into the future. And that reminded me a lot of the old guard. So just to start us off, immortality, Amber, what do you think of it? Do you want it? I would never want to be immortal. I remember as a child reading Tuck Everlasting. I know it's, it has nothing to do with the old guard, but we can't help but think about that when we think about immortality. I would never want to be immortal because, so, you know, in my mind, I, I have this like hope and dream that racism as we progress as a society will die, you know, eventually, right? One day, this is not going to be a thing. And I just, think if I was immortal, I would be even more frustrated with humanity. Because I think growing up in a racialized world, I I cannot see a world where that won't exist. To be immortal in that very racialized space is is a death sentence. (laughs) Yeah. I would hope that humans can get past race, considering race is a fairly new human invention. Crazy. Right? From the... 14, late 1400s until now. So hopefully we can get past that. But to the point of getting frustrated, highly, highly recommend uh, seeing this movie because it deals with that human response of these immortals getting really frustrated with humanity. With humanity time and time again. And and that's, that's sort of a trope of superhero movies, right? The superheroes are constantly, you know, you're the expert, so check me if I'm wrong, but the, like the Spider-Man, like he eventually becomes infamous and gets a bad rep and all he's really trying to do is save people. Or what's that scene in the Avengers where they've saved so many people, but look at all this wreckage and debris that you've caused. So it's, it's this idea of like save many, kill one or two, but those bodies add up as well. Exactly. What, how do you weigh the collateral damage that needs to be paid in order to serve humanity or in America's case to serve America specifically. It's sort of like on the good place with the trolley metaphor. Uh, we, you know, we love the good place and we love Chidi's character. If you watch the good place, you know what I'm talking about. The trolley metaphor where this trolley is coming down the track and Chidi, who is this philosopher who always is very conflicted about what he believes and things like that. He's, it's impossible for him to make a decision. So he has to make the decision to either kill one person on this train track or pull the lever and kill five, which to you and me is like, kill the one dude, you know, save five people. But that, that toggle of I'm still killing someone is, is what we kind of see when we discuss these superhero movies, I think. Mm-hmm. Getting back to this idea of immortality and I, I think that Immortality, in my mind, is a key to get past of a lot of humans' hiccup. Uh, for example, the older you get, maybe the less likely things are going to bother you. Unfortunately, what we see in American society is that the older you get, the more conservative you become and the more, more fencing you do. You might accept one or two people into ethnicity or culture, but you're not going to look at other cultures. The older you get, that sort of depresses me a little bit. So it just 
debunks that idea that living forever is going to allow you to accept more people because, or even living for a long time is going to allow you to accept more people because less things matter because you live longer. I see what you're saying, but I think you would get, I think if I was immortal, I would be so annoyed because you're, you're always a 12th grader in a room full of kindergartners. So it's like I'm constantly evolving with my ideas and my thoughts and the way I do things. But everyone else around me is being born and dying and they are not progressing in that same emotional and mental capacity. So I sympathize. (laughs) I can't really because I'm not immortal, but I really hardcore vibe with Andy constantly being annoyed by people around her and humanity and he's the main character of the movie and the comic book of the old guard um and drama king and so i i can see that i know that also in the same breath you can be inspired by new human beings and human ingenuity but i think for the most part those those jaded characters that we see that i mean you get jaded when you're in a room full of people who don't know what's going on. You're just like, uh, and in a hundred years, there's going to be a new batch of people that don't know what's happening. Getting back to your kindergartner, 12th grade analogy. <laughs> I'm so good with these, aren't I? <laughs> it's, it's a great analogy. I think kindergartners, they're so ex- accepting of everyone. And it once you become a 12th grader, you find your click. And then once you get to college, you've developed your ris- your racism or your sexism (laughs) or whatever terrible way you want to treat people. And that's, that's annoying that this idea of growth (laughs) does not encapsulate social growth with other people. It seems, Mm. but if you were to extend it to a hundred, 200, 300 years, maybe that could happen. And just by, by the way, if you're questioning if that is even a likelihood, the average lifespan for a good part of humanity wasn't the 70 years or whatever it was now. It was anywhere, you know, 30, 35, and we've extended the lifespan. And hopefully we can continue doing that. However, that does come at a cost. And we see a little bit of that cost in this film that deals with the lack of resources in the world in general, the violence in the world in general. And so you have these group of immortals who are trying to bring some good into this world. Let's get into some major changes right off the bat. Changes from the comic book to the movie. I noticed right away that one of the main characters, uh, a white dude, Copley, is turned into a black man. He's played in by, the movie. In the movie. He's played by a black man in the movie Shiwatel Ejiofor. 4 I felt like that was great poetic justice, considering the Italian movie posters of 12 Years a Slave that sort of blew up Brad Pitt's face. So in Italy, they completely redesigned the posters for the movie 12 Years a Slave. Exactly. Got you. Uh, And in science fiction specifically, there's a a grand tradition of whitewashing book covers. Oof. I'm sure there is. Yeah. And even today, N.K. Jemisin's trilogy, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, mm-hmm. The Thousand Kingdoms, 
great trilogy, loved it. In Germany, they put a, a white woman with blonde hair on the cover. And the character in the book uh, is not, the main character is not black, but she is definitely not blonde haired, uh, blue right. eyes type, uh, at least one of, one of the main characters. So that, that is a hundred percent. That's a, that's a tradition in science fiction specifically. So have getting a movie directed by a black woman and doing some of that, that flipping, I felt for me was an excellent decision right, right off the bat. I do as well. And I think if I can say something about this, not only did Copley get, um, was Copley played by a very strong actor, a black man, but Copley got more of a story than he did in the comic book. So just to give you a little bit of context in the comic book, he was sort of this like CIA agent in the comic book. He was this rugged CIA agent who ended up betraying the group. I'm not going to give away too much there. But in the movie, we, we, we get to know that he had lost his wife to cancer. And he really thought that helping to capture these immortals was going to help save humanity. Like his intentions were in the right place. So he was very humanized right away. It's, I think every character that made a crazy decision in this movie, you could sort of see like, wow, I, I see that intention. I'm, I'm so excited to talk about like death and everything like that as well. But I, I thought that was a great way for us to sympathize with his character and accept the fact that he betrayed them. Right. I want to go into another major change right off the bat that you would notice is that the character, one of the characters in the comic books is named Noriko. She's Japanese, but in the movie, uh, her name is Quinn, and mm-hmm. she's played by uh, Veronica Nong. And that the reason that was changed is because uh, Veronica, the actress, is Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. And she asked uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood if they could accommodate that. And Gina Prince-Bythewood said, hell, hell fucking yeah. What do you mean by accommodate that? That they could make her character Vietnamese and give her a name that was traditionally Vietnamese. Oh, because the name in the comic book was traditionally Japanese. Correct. That is, I mean, that just gave me chills because, of course, I'm an actor as well. And I have... Not been acting very long, but, and I mostly do theater on the stage. And I would never dream of asking a director b- because of the work environments I've been in. I'm not going to name drop, but I've never felt so comfortable with a director that I could say, Hey, I'm not comfortable with this line here and, and what you just put me up to do. Can we make some changes to honor my heritage and honor my culture? And of, and obviously Gina has created a space and a, a team of actors where a, a whole team, producers, writers, everyone, where she has made people feel comfortable where they can talk to her about that. Because, you know, in, in my mind as an actor, it's like the director has a billion things going on. I don't want to be a problem. I just got in the door. Let me be quiet. And so I love that this woman's like, y'all are my team. I got your backs and anything you need. Let's talk about that, even if that's different from the comic book. I also love that the man that wrote the comic book, Greg Rucka, wrote the screenplay for the movie. And it's it's one of those things where, you know, typically sometimes you see a book or a movie 
a book on screen and you're like, well, the book was way better. This was kind of like, oh, there are things I love about the comic book, but there are things I loved about the movie. It, it's so clear that they collaborated together to honor the authenticity and the stories of those characters. Exactly. At this uh, In this podcast, we love celebrating Black storytelling. And a question that we discuss a lot about is what is Black storytelling and what is a Black story? And Greg Rucka is a, a white author, and he's known for putting queer characters and women of color in his comic books. Does he have that right? Is something that we often discuss, like, or to what extent does he have that right? For me, this does become black storytelling, and we'll get more into that, because it is a major comic book movie that's directed by a black woman. And that, for me, is is a huge draw to, to this film. But let's just go into initial thoughts after we finish this movie. For the first time, we watched it twice. Mm-hmm. Second time, we were slightly drunk. We'd smoke a little weed. Mm-hmm. But after that first time, <laughs> right when you were done with the film. We were definitely high watching it last night. But it was great. It was it was good. Sober. It was good. Drunk. It was good. After that first time, mm-hmm. what were your thoughts? I mean, uh, you know, because I have watched Star Wars and the Avengers with you. And I have fallen asleep in the theater and at the house. Multiple times. Mul- okay, I said it, so you didn't have to. Um, the Old Guard, I was awake from start to finish. It's a two-hour movie. Well, first off, you know, Charlize Theron, I mean, she can do no wrong. I've been a fan of hers from Mighty Joe Young to, obviously, Mad Max Fury Road is one of the most epic movies ever. Just so, if I see Charlize Theron in a desert, I'm watching the movie. So... It, she she was such a strong female lead for this movie, and but the whole cast was our all star cast. The whole cast was an all star cast. I love Kiki Lane. You remember I watched and read if Bill Street could talk, so I loved her there. And this movie is so well done. Gina Prince Bythewood is such a phenomenal storyteller. Gina Prince Bythewood killed the storytelling. Every Every character had a name, a story, an arc, a motivation. We truly, as an actor, it's really important for you to know a character's mantra. Uh, I've learned that from an acting class I took. And so it's like, what? who is the essence of who this character is? What mantra would they say to themselves every morning when they wake up? And I feel that each of those characters had very distinct mantras, but they all worked together and and GPB, she put it all together. Like we, we mixed it up, put some sauce on it, like serve it up, and we ate that shit. And it was great. What I, were your thoughts? I mean, right <laughs> afterwards, I thought, "What the fuck?" Because you had heard of it. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think before I did, which surprised me because I knew the writer of this. I had read his work before, and I love superhero films. So I did not know that this was going to be a story about immortality. We watched it again. I, I don't think we've ever watched a movie twice. Nope. We've never watched a movie. This is the first movie in five years that we've watched twice together. Before we get into details, let's just do a really, really brief summary of this. You have, you're introduced to a group, a team. They are 
contractors, you're assuming some sort of ex-military, and they're hired to do a job to rescue children in Sudan. Their motivation to doing it is very clear from the beginning, is pure um, altruism. It, there is no really money involved. It is These are professionals who are looking to put good in the world. However, they go to the compound to rescue these children, and they are surprised, set up, and shot, and they're killed. And at this point, you're like, what the fuck? Is this going to be a loop time travel thing? That's that, mm-hmm. That's the first thing I thought. You're like, damn, the main character just died. I thought this maybe, must be from the past. Yeah, exactly. You think there's going to be some sort of flip. And actually, no, they are immortal, and their bodies push out the bullets that they've been littered with, they get up and very violently and brutally in a non-celebratory way, kill everyone in the room, uh, in a, almost in a ballet type of way, the way way they feed off each other. What is it like the macabre? (laughs) Did I just pronounce that word wrong? I have no idea. The dance? The The macabre? I I don't know what the hell I'm trying to say, but you know what I'm trying to say. The macaroni. Keep going. The macaroni. So they they kill, and it find you discover that uh, this person Copley has discovered their secret and now wants to capture them and harvest their genetic code to provide immortality to the rest of the world. And he's doing that, th- acting as a third party for this big pharma. Mm. Silicon Valley down with Big Pharma, yes, yeah, a guy named Merrick who who is your big bad, and so you have your Copley who's like your little bad, and then Merrick your big bad, and that's that's basically the premise. Oh, I forgot one of the most important parts. As this is setting up, you there is a new immortal who's just discovered, and this is Kiki Lane's character Niall, and she's she's the baby of this group. Uh, she's a Marine in Afghanistan, and as they dis- the moment after they discover that they've been d- betrayed, the team, and we'll get into the details of the team, this team of immortals, a new immortal is essentially awakened, and they go and find her and bring her to their team. And now it's between the team of immortals versus Copley and the big bad, big pharma, Neville Logbottom, Merrick. Deadly Dursley. Oh, it's Dudley. It's Dudley. It's I, not even Neville. It's Dudley ass. Even, I know they look the same, but it's Dudley. All those British white boys <laughs> as a children look the same. I agree, but it was kind of fun to be like, Dudley, is that you for Harry Potter? <laughs> like, it was great to be like, we ain't seen you in a minute. Look at you all growing up. Still a asshole. <laughs> exactly. It, it was great to see him. I, I think that's kind of the only way it would have worked because in the comic book, that figure was like blonde with all these tattoos all over him. So you'd, you'd imagine that like Machine Gun Kelly or somebody would be cast in this role, like a Post Malone type. But when we saw that it was Deadly Ass, it was like, you know what? That works. <laughs> I just had to catch you. You were slipping. I had to catch you. Thank you. That's why you, I'm here. That You just pulled my nerd card. I did. Or played, no, you played your I nerd card. I played my own. You played your own yes, nerd card. Yes, I did. Draw four. Let's let's get right into it talking about Kiki Lane and Charlize Theron's relationship. I okay, now I'm going to come back to the cat fights. 
because they weren't cat fights. This is the first movie I've ever seen where the ladies weren't like sexy and ripping each other's clothes off. And so, so obviously Kiki Lane's character, Niall, is found by Charlize Theron's character, Andy. So Andy finds Niall and like anyone basically kidnaps her. And like anyone, Niall is like, what are you, where are we going? Why are you taking me away? How anyone will react that way. And then Andy's character just shoots her because she knows she's going to come back to life. And so we see this sort of like mentor mentee. What am I trying to say? Relationship. Relationship right away where she's like, come on kid, get, get with me. I'll explain everything. Um, but obviously they're free, obviously free minute versus fighting back. And it's like, what's going on. And so they have this really great fight scene on the plane. And, I, I cannot express enough how powerful and strong these women look as they're trying to kick each other's ass for a good reason. Not over no man. Nobody's titties are out. This is just true combat because these are warriors and we have not seen a lot of that. Even, you know, I might get flamed for this, but like even Wonder Woman, you know, she's Wonder Woman, but she's got a tight little skirt on. She's got a corset. She's got sweetheart neckline, so her breasts are, like, nice and perky. And so this is a, a movie I can get into. Even, like, Storm, just about every woman I've seen as a superhero is sexualized and objectified in some way, except Black Panther, with all these, like, warriors in Wakanda that have no hair. So I really get excited when I see two women, one whose hair is braided and one whose hair is completely short, just, like, duking it out because that's what warriors would look like if they were fighting. That's one thing I really enjoyed about a big difference between the comic book and the movie is in the comic book, Andy, the main character had really long, luscious hair that sat right below her chest. Like she's obviously still beautiful and skinny and all the things. And Charlize Theron, like, you know, she's a bad bitch. She's in great shape, but her hair was short for this movie, which is powerful because when two women are about to fight on the street, the first thing that that happens is people put their hair up in a ponytail, take off the earrings and, and duke it out. So, I really enjoyed that this movie was like, we're not here to be pretty. We're not here to be sexy and turn people on. We are here to fight because we are warriors. We also see Niall's Marine uh, crew. Also, they're all women as well. All women. Mm-hmm. And that I, I thought was, again, just a little detail that grounded the story for me in a much realer sense. Also, when... She is discovering that she is immortal. They do an excellent job of her dealing with the trauma of killing the man Mm -hmm. that kills her. And trauma in this film is taken seriously. It's looked at... It's handled with care. It's handled with care. And it looks at uh, military personnel and the damaging effects that occur when you take a life. It takes yep. that very seriously. And it stays with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, within that sobriety, there are these funny, hilarious moments. The moment you mentioned where Andy is like, oh, fuck, and like this is going to make things so much easier, and just shoots, you know, shoots Niall to show that you're immortal. This is not something that you've imagined. This is real. And... I thought that, you know, was really great. But also, you you see Charlize Theron driving in the desert. Mad Max, baby. And, and we can watch Charlize Theron, I guess, driving in the desert anytime. Anytime. It, it was, it was With really, short hair, shaved hair. We it was love great. It. But there was a detail I thought was 
incredibly fascinating. As Kiki Lane leaves the military compound, you see a box that says Merrick, mm-hmm. which is the big pharma, big bad. And so it's implied that the military is actually going to steal uh, Kiki Lane's character, uh, Niall, after they discover that she can be brought back to life. But So it's all working together. I think it's all working together. It's to- the system. It's all connected yeah, right. in the great circle of life. Yep. And, which would be awful if if a if a country had possession of one of these super soldiers instead of the old guard, which is these group of individuals who are vigilantes. They are they bring vigilante justice in that in the way that they deem best. Even outside of the warriors and the fighters, one awesome change that the book also made well, from the book to the movie that, you know, our girl Gina Prince-Bythewood made was that the scientist in the movie was, in the book, was a man. And the scientist in the movie was a woman. And it's just those little things that she does, like you said, that poetic justice of, let me flip a couple of these roles and tropes on their head just so that people can see themselves for the first time in ever represented on film as superheroes. Like that's not something that I saw a lot of when I was a little kid, but now I'm like, Oh my gosh, the, the woman is a scientist. Like, come on. So I just want I thought that that was worth noting. Even the people that were not fighters were different roles. Mm-hmm. Something that the film deals with really well is this idea of wanting to give up, especially when you're trying to bring Oof. good into the world. Yeah, and there's, there's a line that says uh, Andy is fed up. She is just fed up with saving people. This is after Copley has betrayed her, betrayed the team. And she says, the world can burn for all I care. I'm done. That just made me think of all the social workers, teachers that feel that sentiment. And, but <laughs> I mean, don't even get your girl started. <laughs> but Andy has made it. Over 6,000 years. Right. Right. Trying to do some some sort of good. I, I put my little five years of teaching in. <laughs> and I said, man, I can't do this no more. Even with immortality, trying to do the right thing is so fucking difficult. And constantly question yourself. Because mm-hmm. the old guard does question themselves. Yep. Whether, is it appropriate to take this one life to save the many? And they do that. They make that decision to take the one life or the three lives or the thousands of lives to save the tens of thousands of lives. And Merrick is also trying to do that. He's trying to capture these immortals to extract their genetic code to provide immortality to the rest of the world. And he says, you could have saved thousands, millions if you just give us your genetic code, even if we have to keep you tied up and cutting parts of you off uh, for for all of eternity. Yeah, but again, it goes back to intention. Merrick isn't doing it because he thinks humanity should live on. He's doing it because he wants to make money. He wants to be the biggest big pharma. If he had good intentions, should he have... Does he have a right to capture all the old guard and keep them holed up in a lab? No. Okay. I will say more. Because this has happened, not for immortality, but with, oh, for immortality, the immortal life of Henrietta Lex. 
you're you can't just capture people and take their cells and their DNA and do what you want with it. That's not how things work. And well, it is how things work, but not that's not how things should work. I remember thinking that same thing when and research and science is very important, as we know, it has to for the progression of humanity. But I remember feeling that same sadness when I was watching like E.T. as a child because these doctors are coming in and they're just like, we have to take him because we got to study him in a lab. And this little boy's like, but he's my friend. Like, why do you have to take him away? And, you know, we, we've seen lots of different alien movies and things like that. And there's this sense of like, can we just let things be sometimes? I know that sounds wild, but can't we just leave this the hell alone and and people come in and don't handle things with care. You know, now I'm getting into like gentrifying and stuff. People just come in and say like, no, but we're going to do the research and we're going to make this so much better. And then this is going to thrive. And it's like, but what happens to the people who were here before you? What what happens to that community? Like, so what you did your research? What happens to Elliot now that you've taken his friend away from him? I think it's really important that you you honor that as well even with the old guard if if i was that person i'd be like hey we know that you're immortal what can we do to support like <laughs> i know i'm a, a a sucker for like the good guy but i wouldn't be fucking with nobody who was immortal like for real like that leave them the hell alone and and lead like let them be the leader and you you are the example. That's why this film is excellent, though, because it does make you ask ask those questions. And Merrick does make me think of major people, big people in Silicon Valley who are bringing us these great products that we use, but they're also assholes. Mm-hmm. And they do terrible things, and they treat their workers like shit, uh, and probably are doing shady things and are probably responsible to death. Merrick is brought to justice (laughs) and in an amazing way. But before we get to sort of that ending, I do want to talk about the little details in this film that make it incredibly character driven. And in the beginning of the film, before we know that they're immortal, you see them, you see the team come together and we'll, we'll go through the teams, you know, step by step. You have Andy, who is the leader. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have, uh, Joe and Nikki, who is my favorite couple on screen, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll get into that. And then you have Booker, 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 and I think it's Joe and Nikki give Charlize Theron's character Andy a piece of baklava, mm-hmm. and you haven't heard really any do- like dialogue at this point. You this is at the beginning of the movie. This is the beginning of the movie. So they give her a piece of baklava, and she tastes she tastes it she eats it and she does this like wine tasting but a baklava style mm-hmm. and this has nothing to do with the plot but immediately i was drawn in mm-hmm. to and it wasn't in the comic book and it wasn't that scene wasn't in the comic book greg rucka did write the screenplay as well oh. and they wrote they worked very very closely so i'm curious if the Netflix movie is sort of his rewrite of the mm-hmm. old guard because it did feel so much tighter and stronger 
and there was these little moments. But I think the way uh, Gina Prince Bythewood films this is so intimate, even though it's a superhero action film. And there's a lot of those little things in here. For example, the reason that they decide to take Copley's offer in the beginning of the movie to save these Sudan children is he he's ex-CIA and he says that the CIA won't get involved with saving these children because uh, Sudan is a non-strategic ally. So they're not going to support, right? They're not going to support Sudan. And that really, really grounded with me. And then you juxtapose that with the next scene where they're the mil, you know, us military is in Afghanistan which right. there is a strategic you, mm-hmm. reason for us to be in Afghanistan for yeah to make my opinion to make wealthier people more wealthy. Agreed. And at time throughout the entire movie, you see that Copley in his office. You see a picture of him and his wife. You see uh, it's an Afrocentric office. Mm-hmm. You see uh, an Akenga, I believe, um, it sort of set up in the background, and everything. What's is- an Akenga been? It is a. Y'all hear that clicking? Don't. <laughs> All right, so get I get it right. Get it right. I just found out what an Akinga is because uh, Nettie Okorafor just came out with her first middle age novel uh, called Akenya Akenga. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but it's a. It's basically a powerful symbol of the Igbo people and a very common, like, cultural artifact mm. uh, in, 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 in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. In Nigeria. Uh, so that little detail, and uh, the reason I saw it was like, oh. I just read. I, I'm reading, I'm Akenga. reading, mm-hmm. you know, I'm reading Ikenga. And that was just very powerful for me because all the space is curated. Uh, mm. he, he has a British accent that's explained as well and it's done done so so fucking excellently i think those are the you know we're talking about how gina prince bythewood has that insane attention to detail and she does things like that because like you can put a black person in a role or you can put a black person in a role does that make sense so you can change this character from black to white or you can say we're gonna make this character black we're gonna decorate his office in a very like afrocentric way we're gonna ground him in some of these like afrocentric family values cultural norms like and those are the things that make me think like oh this clearly was directed by a black person because it's not enough anymore. Like, we, we can tell it's, you know, going back to black storytelling. It's like, did you put a black person in the role or did you create a black narrative? Like, there's a very distinct difference, in my opinion. She also does that with Niall, Kiki Lane's character. Uh, Period. Yeah, right? Her <laughs> father is a Marine and she's from the south side of Chicago. And us being in Chicago, I have seen firsthand recruiters focus on poor black and brown neighborhoods and sort of providing the military as a way to escape poverty. Right. And so there's that, that text going on there as Mm -hmm. well. Uh, 
Um, so it, again, mm-hmm. that, that detail is, I think, really poignant. The other thing that she does really extremely well is doing the show Don't Tell. Mm-hmm. However, she there is scenes where they give a backstory for the, the old guard okay. um, to uh, Niall because she's just coming in, right? She... She yeah. is a twentieth. She's a twenty-first century woman who is now immortal. And so, if you think of each of these immortals as being a ray, you know, having a starting point and then going on forever and ever, um, her ray starts as uh, thinking of it in terms of a timeline. Her ray starts in the twenty-first century, and each character, uh, Joe and Nikki, they start in the Crusades. Um, uh, Booker starts in the Napoleon Bonaparte era, and Andy starts 6,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they explain one of the old guard who is now missing, Quinn, uh, who was captured um, after Andy and her were trying to free witches during the witch hunts mm-hmm. of... Oh, the of the I guess the mid the medieval eight the medieval yeah, times maybe and as they're explaining this mm-hmm. they're showing it as well so that you get this flashback scene and one of the most oh, horrific parts of this movie is the, uh. is Quinn they're captured Quinn and Andy are captured they're repeatedly hung they're not dying so they take Quinn put her in an Iron Maiden, and drop her down into the sea. Yep. And I was... Yeah, and I was reading... That that was not in the comic books. What happened in the comic books is that they were sailing on the ocean, a big wave comes and knocks, um, in this character, Noriko, overboard. Mm -hmm. Uh, This, Quinn is put in an Iron Maiden, dropped in, in the ocean. The reason that is done is because the budget wasn't big enough to have a big storm pirate scene. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, that what they did instead was way more haunting. Like that is a, a nightmare to be immortal and to just wake up in the bottom of the ocean, suffocate and drown again, and then just do it all over again. Like she's died five hundred times at least. They show it. It's insanity. They show it, and you feel... I, I remember, I feel like my... I put my hands around my neck or something just to be like, oh, am I still breathing? Because <laughs> it was it was a pr- very effective scene. We, we could actually figure out the math, because I think she's in there for 500 years, and your body, you're drowning every, what, two minutes? Mm. So how many minutes... Are in 500 years. I mean. Next caller. In many ways, this is both a superhero story and an origin story. And it is Kiki Lane's character's origin story. Yeah. And there were two major changes that Gina Prince-Bythewood wanted to make. And uh, one of them was to show trauma. Uh, that's caused by repeated killing over thousands of years. The Oof. other, the other one that she wanted to change was to put Kiki Lane's character more at the forefront. I mm-hmm. thought that was an excellent decision. It 
was very powerful. And there's a, there's a scene where uh, Kiki Lane is discovering her powers. She puts her hand in a fire just to watch it burn a little bit. And as she does, uh, she pulls her hand away. And Booker, who's become this like really jaded type of character, looks over at her and says, just because we keep living doesn't mean we stop hurting. And he just carries so much hurt. You see it on his face. He's he's drinking in every scene. That makes me... That line, though, makes me think of what it... Like, living as a human isn't just breathing it's not. and getting your basic needs met. That's not living... And it's about relationship and it's about community. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, this story does become about community and also about what happens when someone from your community betrays you. And so that there are like twists throughout this movie. The first twist, we realize that they're immortal and Copley, this contractor, has betrayed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, another big twist is that there is a new immortal Niall, who joins the group. And then the final twist is that Booker, who is drinking throughout the film, who who we see trying to help his last son. Uh, um, he, he witnesses his last son die, and so he's carried all this pain. Yeah. Well, he is the one who originally set up the team to be betrayed. Yeah. And the reason he does that is he wants to, to die. die. He wants to die. He wants to die. He's so traumatized and he wants to die. I And you sympathize with him. You're like if if I have lived so long to the point where I've watched everyone else around me die, I want to die too. Mm-hmm. I I mean that's so human, right? Because what is what what is life worth living if you can't share and it doesn't have to be a romantic partner what what's the point of living if you are alone it's that that idea of just true solitude and loneliness that booker has and i think that's why he's such a complex well-done character because we have all felt like wow i'm just alone. Andy has a moment like that at the end of volume one where she's like, I don't want to fight anymore, but I also don't want to be alone. And so I have to keep fighting with this group to escape loneliness. I have to kill to escape loneliness. I mean, that's what people, people join organized crime and and gangs and, and do things. And I can so understand, you know, I'm not advocating for the harm that groups do, but I, completely understand someone not having community and finding it and needing family and mentorship and strength. There is that scene where another twist, this movie is filled with twists. Twist Go watch on it. Twists but not you, too predictable. Yeah, you, <laughs> great. You, you discover that the immortals can actually die. Everyone dies. It's just not their time yet. And they get to live longer. So by the end of this movie, Andy actually is no longer healing. Mm-hmm. Be- and she has lost her immortality. And so at one point she goes to a pharmacy. And she can... It's sort of funny because she she has a stab wound. She 
doesn't know what to buy for yeah. medicine to help. That's herself. really cool to think about. That she does, like, I think she was, like, even putting candy in there. The way that people do when you're like, I need the morning after pill, let me just put some more stuff in this cart to make it look like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, or whatever. And I think it's interesting because her character is probably about, I don't know, mid-40s or late-30s, and the girl at the front desk immediately notices that the the clerk at the front is like, you need some help? Like, what's going on? And... And so the clerk at the front desk, who's not immortal, just a tertiary character, I don't think we even get her name, sort of reaches out and decides to help Andy. And that that small act of kindness mm-hmm. encourages, inspires, inspires Andy to keep to fighting. not yeah to need to keep fighting. But also a larger part of it is Niall's character, who is new. She's fresh. And she folds her uniform when she's done with it, and uh, and she's she's still very idealistic, and that mm-hmm. also inspires Andy as well. And however, um, with Booker's betrayal, he 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 talks about his loneliness, and there there are characters in the old guard who are not lonely. Uh, our favorite couple. Our favorite really, couple. We haven't really talked about yeah. they're a gay couple that mm-hmm. you don't really see betrayed in films. Never. Uh, I say, I, obviously we see gay couples portrayed in films, but we also see stereotypical sort of like man and wife dynamics with gay characters that we see on film and these two characters were just both strong powerful warrior men and they their relationship almost transcends anything we could ever imagine right because they've been in love for centuries they're almost like one like powerful entity because they're true partners in life who are probably going to live a, a thousand lifetimes and I, I you have to quote this powerful scene that was in the comic book and the movie are you gonna do it justice uh, i am I, it is so this happens after booker betrays the old guard joe and nikki get captured by merrick's team and when they're captured niall and and andy are away from mm-hmm. from the action so Joe and Nikki get captured, and as they're in this vehicle, uh, Joe checks in on Nikki, and one of the soldiers who's riding the vehicle with a gun on them says, you know, what? what is he your boyfriend? Kindergartners. <laughs> Kindergartners. And <laughs> Joe's response is, you are a child, an infant, and your mocking is thus infantile. That man is not my boyfriend. That man is more to me than you can dream in your simpering, pathetic life. That man is the stars in my sky and the sun that lights my days. That man is the moon when I am lost in darkness and warmth when I shiver in cold. I love that man beyond measure and reason. His kiss still thrills me even after a millennium since I first tasted him. His body to this day awakens a passion you will never know. His heart overflows with a kindness of which this world is not worthy. His very thoughts make music of the mundane. He is not my boyfriend. He is not my lover, nor is he my partner. He is all and more. He is my everything. <laughs> Joe, Joe says that, and then Nikki looks over at him and says, you incurable romantic. And then they kiss. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, inc- wow. it's very, it's very powerful. Uh, 
And it makes me glad for my, my, my people, my white people, because a, a white straight man wrote that. Yeah. There's, wow. there's hope. There's I think this whole book is about, it's still some good out there. <laughs> Gina Prince Bythewood said that the sequel is going to be up to the audience. We want it. Which is why we need it. Which is why we wanted to do this podcast to make sure on, on this subject to make sure that the sequel is made. Gina, if you're listening, please make sure you touch the sequel in some way. If you're too busy to direct it, I understand, but you need to look over the script. You know, come one day on set and just give your opinion and walk away. And I, I trust that much. So please be a part of the sequel. We love you. Keep doing what you're doing. What would you say to Jane Prince Bythewood if she was listening? Please keep on making science fiction and fantasy films. We need voices like yours that bring new perspectives. All right, Ben. Ready to warp up the show? Ready to warp it up. In conclusion, (laughs) go watch The Old Guard. Go read the books. There's only two volumes out. That's it. Quick read. This was my first comic book I've ever read on my own, y'all, and I loved it. Please read The Old Guard, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Sci-Fi Sci. Stop what you're doing right now and go support Gina Prince-Bythewood. She's amazing. You could go see The Old Guard. It's on Netflix. And also, I mean, who doesn't love seeing love and basketball again and again and again? And y'all, let's get a little skirt outside. Halloween's coming up, so we're going to get into that Halloween bag. We'll be exploring a history of black horror by watching the film Horror Noir. It's a documentary that was released in 2019. Be sure to catch Catch those and catch us next time. We'll see y'all next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. 